Amen. Well, we're so glad that you're here this morning. So wonderful to have you. As it is every Lord's Day to look at God's Word with you, we come to the part in our service now where we're going to hear the Word of God being made clear to us, and it's already been made clear many a times this this morning. But I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. I'd love for all of you to grab a Bible. So if you don't have one, there's some in the seat pockets in front of you or around you. But I'd love for you to follow along with us so that you can see what God's word says yourself and be encouraged and edified by it. So grab a Bible. There should be one around you so that you can follow along with God's word. And uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. We'll be looking mostly at verse 58 this morning. It's a familiar one, but maybe an unexpected one for Easter. You say, I've never heard this preached during Easter. And, um, and it's a good one for Easter, I assure you that. And let me tell you, recently in our church, we've made our way through Luke's gospel, where we spent really three whole weeks on the resurrection of Christ. And I want to encourage you to go back if you're, if you're wondering what the significance was or is or how it all played out in regards to the timeline of, of Christ raising from the dead. What was everyone around him doing? How did they find out? Uh, what was the proof that he really did raise from the dead? You can go back and listen to those messages. We spent a lot of time talking about the significance of the resurrection, really the theological implications of what it means. And, uh, and then we spent some time talking about the order of events, how all of those things took place, and uh, really is an expansive narrative that describes how the Lord Jesus enacted all of this regarding the resurrection. It's even a little bit complicated when you put all of the Gospels, all four Gospel accounts together and try to look at it. But what a great time it was for us. And what we see is that in Luke's Gospel, Luke goes to great lengths to emphasize the literal resurrection of Christ from the dead. He goes to great lengths to show that Christ was actually dead, literally dead, and that he actually, literally rose from the dead. He goes to great lengths through showing proof after proof. And, uh, and we are convinced through his gospel that Jesus really did raise. And so moving now into all of this narrative that Luke gave us, it was really clear to us that Jesus accomplished God's whole plan of salvation for us by dying and and raising. And so today, as we've really as a church moved through Luke's account of all of this, I want to focus really on a very practical implication of the resurrection this morning. I want to focus really on a very practical implication of it. You see, there are many implications of the resurrection and we've talked about it. What we know is that the resurrection, because Jesus rose from the dead, that he accomplished salvation. When he rose from the dead, it was like a receipt that he had paid the payment for sin in full and that 
God had accepted his payment and the payment was indeed paid. It was like he was released, in a sense, from having served the time on our behalf. He was raised from the dead. We know that God's wrath was satisfied on the cross. He accomplished salvation. We also know when he rose from the dead that it vindicated him as the Lord Jesus. Everyone was wondering whether or not this indeed was the Messiah and if he was telling the truth about his divinity. And when he rose from the dead, it vindicated him to be the Lord. There would be no doubt. Just as when he returns, it will vindicate him once once again. When you see him in the sky returning, you will have no doubt that he indeed is the Lord. It also allows us to understand that we have a living Savior. You have a living Savior who is not still dead, but is alive in heaven, ascended into heaven, whom you can have a real, active, live relationship with. We have a living Savior in heaven interceding on our behalf. You have a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus if you're in Christ. He's alive. He hears your prayers, and he moves in your life. And also, we know that an implication of the resurrection is that he can give us new life. If he raised Christ from the dead by his power, he can raise us from the dead in salvation and in regeneration and sanctification. He can make us new by that same spirit that rose Christ from the dead. It also guarantees that all of us who are in Christ will be raised also when we die. We can be raised if we believe in Christ, and when we die go to be with God. And all of this is wonderful in its implications, but there's more. There's more to be learned in terms of what the resurrection means for our lives. And this morning, I want to focus specifically on what does it mean for your life right now, every day? As you live your Christian life in Christ, what implications does the resurrection have for you currently? And so this morning, I want to focus on one implication, which is steadfastness. Because of the resurrection, you can be, as a believer in Christ, steadfast in your faith. And that's what I've titled this morning's message, the result of the resurrection, steadfastness. Steadfastness. And so the resurrection can help us. We can move forward continually as believers in Christ. We can fight sin. When you're discouraged, you can keep going. When you have no motivation to repent of sin, you can be motivated by something, namely his resurrection. When you're tired and when it seems difficult to continue following Christ, when obedience seems overwhelming, when God has called you from his word to be faithful and to the end, And you might be discouraged or despondent or spiritually depressed. Maybe you have a history of sin and God has called you very pointedly to repent through his word. And now you're wondering if you can keep that motivation to obey him for the rest of your life. Well, the resurrection motivates us to keep going. It motivates us to be steadfast in our faith. And we're going to see how. So let's read just verse 58 briefly, and then I will go back through really chapter 15 this morning. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers, 
be what? Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What a verse. This verse should be always before you as a believer in Christ. Now, what we're seeing in this verse is Paul exhorting the church in Corinth to be steadfast. In other words, he's encouraging them to continue in hope, to remain obedient, to stay faithful, to listen to his corrective words that he's laid out throughout this entire book and to obey and to make it to the end as a believer in Christ. And to look forward to the hope that you have in heaven and to not give up. He's encouraging these believers to stand on what they believe, to stand on the truths, to believe the gospel and hold fast to it all the way to the end. He's encouraging them to be faithful in their service, faithful in their obedience, to do so with longevity, to hold on tight, to fight sin to keep the hope. And all of this is in response to the resurrection of Christ. All of this is in response to the resurrection. And so let me explain what's going on here. In verse 58, Paul here is, he's really giving one exhortation. He's really giving one command, and that's to be steadfast, to be steadfast. In other words, there's not different commands here or different aspects here is so much as there's one aspect, be steadfast. And there's a lot of different subcategories to it that help us to understand what that actually means. He's addressing one issue. There's really one point and underneath he's giving complementary features that are only slightly different to make clear what he means by being steadfast. And so This encouragement, this command to be steadfast, and those features that help explain what he means, they're going to serve as our points this morning, our headings. And so Paul's going to speak of four features, four features that he wants the Corinthian church to have in light of the resurrection. Number one, continuation. Number two, constraint. Number three, consistency. And number four, confidence. And I'll pray that the Lord will help you as an individual and as a church to be what Paul is calling this church to be. So before we get there, we have to understand what's motivating this exhortation, which is where today comes in. What's motivating this exhortation? Look at verse 58. You see a word there that is a common word that we point out very often. What is that word? Therefore. When you see the word therefore, we ask, what is it? Therefore. And it's consistently connecting us with the preceding verses. It's connecting us with what just came before. And so he is giving this command in light of something else. He's telling them, Be steadfast. And it's in light of a reality that he just talked about. In other words, because of something, you can and should be what? Steadfast. 
There are times that are going to feel like in your life as a believer that you just want to give up. That you've maybe gone too far. That maybe what's being required of you in Christ is overwhelming. Maybe you've tried hard and it's discouraging because you keep failing in the faith. There's going to be times where you face maybe spiritual depression, despondency, maybe even times where it looks like the wicked are prospering. As Psalm 70, 73, where Asaph said, it seems as if the wicked are prospering. They have no pangs. Everything's going well for them. I'm keeping my faith in vain. And you say, why do I keep going and following Christ? Well, the Lord Jesus wants you to be steadfast. And you can be steadfast in light of one great reality, namely the resurrection. And so this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, in other words, because of the resurrection, you can and should be steadfast. It's the reason they can and do, uh, can do what he's about to tell them to do. It's the confidence they have, the reason they have, the hope they have to be what he's telling them to be. So this grounds, this motivation, what is it? Well, listen now, when you see the word therefore, you go back and you say, what is he referring to? In light of what? Because here's the deal. He could be saying therefore in light of one verse before it, right? He could be saying therefore in light of just one verse before it. Well, how far back do we go? And here's a hermeneutical principle for you. Oftentimes you can go back to the last point in which the subject changed. The subject changed. You can go back to the most recent change in subject, and you're going to usually notice this naturally. But go back to the beginning of chapter 15 in verse 1. He starts with the word what? Now. It's a change in subject. He's changing the subject here. He's moving into something very clear. He's making a point to transition here into something. This now initiates a new subject. And you can know that this initiates a new subject because he's done this plenty of times in this book so far. In chapter 7, verse 1. In chapter 7, verse 25. In chapter 8, verse 1. In chapter 11, verse 2. In chapter 12, verse 1. In chapter 16, verse 15. He's done this a number of times. He changes and transitions to a particular subject or teaching or idea that he wants to make clear through using this word now. And here he comes in chapter 15, verse 1, and he says now, and he's going to remind them of something and point out something very particular, namely the topic of the resurrection. And he's going to continue teaching about the resurrection until we get to chapter 15, verse 58, when he says, therefore, in light of this teaching, on the resurrection, something should be true of your life. Something should be true of your life. So 15.1 to 15.58, the resurrection and its implications. The resurrection and its implications. The motivation, the solid ground, the confidence, the reality, the truth of why you can and should be steadfast in the Lord is because of the resurrection of Christ. And really, this section is bookended because look at chapter 15, verse 1 and verse 2. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, 
if you what? Hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here's what he's saying now. Now, be steadfast. Or here he says in chapter 15, verse 1, hold fast. Then he's going to remind them of the resurrection. And then he's going to come back in chapter 15, verse 58 and say, therefore, be steadfast. Right? And so this is a exhortation sandwich. It's got the idea in chapter 15, verses 1 through 2, hold fast in light of this great gospel, namely the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, hold fast. That's what he's doing here. And so this is a great, great truth for us. Paul makes a transition here. Remind the church about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus, the gospel in which they stand to these believers The gospel that was preached to them, the gospel that saved them, the gospel that they're holding to, the gospel that they must continue to hold to unless their confession in the beginning was in vain. Meaning this, if you don't hold to the gospel, to this risen Lord Jesus to the end, then your initial response to Christ didn't mean anything, right? He's telling them to hold fast to this. This is the message of Christ. And then he reminds them of the resurrection. And again, in verse 58 says, therefore, be steadfast, be steadfast. And so the resurrection makes all of this possible. Now, what is Paul teaching here in these in-between verses about the resurrection? What is he teaching about the resurrection? Well, let's just read it. Let's read all of it. You say, we're going to read 57 verses. Yep. Let's read it. And then I'm just going to give you very, I'm going to give you a flyover, two very simple implications of this section here. I'm just going to divide it into two main headings that Paul is teaching here. And then it's going to lead us right into the implications for our lives. Let's read chapter 15, starting in verse one. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Remember, you could have made a decision in the beginning. If you don't hold fast, this means nothing, right? Unless you believed in vain. All right, there's the bread on the front side. Let's let's look at the meat. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he, de- uh, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then, all, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father after this, uh, the kingdom, to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy is to be destroyed, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, um, that he is expect, accepted, um, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being, uh, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body uh, that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind a seed its own and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. 
The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been uh, have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I know there's a lot there that you don't understand, and I'd love to explain it to you because it's actually very straightforward, but I just want to summarize this teaching with two overarching themes here in the chapter 15, and then we'll get to our exhortation at the end. What is Paul saying here? Give me, let me give you two brief points. Number one, the resurrection of Christ is a reality. The resurrection of Christ is a reality. Follow along with me. The resurrection of Christ is a reality. It's true. It's real. Christ died and was buried and was raised. He literally and physically rose from the grave. Look at verses 5 through 10 of chapter 15. It says this, Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, by the way, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. What is Paul saying here? He's Paul saying is, this is a reality. This isn't some fictitious story. People saw him after he was raised from the dead. He's telling all this as proof. Jesus literally rose from the grave. Luke, as I told you in the beginning, goes to great lengths, extensive lengths, to show that Jesus was actually dead. They even pierced his side. Blood and water came out. Pericardial fluid to show this man was literally dead. And what Paul's saying here is, this man literally came back to what? Life. This is verified by the proofs. All these realities are true. He expands on them. And even look at chapter 15. As we look on, what he's saying here further down is he's saying that these people in that same section, 5 through 10, what he's saying is all these people who saw him are still what? Alive. Most of these people are still alive. Like you could just go ask them if they really saw this resurrected Jesus. Remember we summarized this when we walked through Luke's gospel he raised from the dead. 
group of women from Galilee saw him. Mary Magdalene saw him. Sunday afternoon, he saw two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Sunday evening, nine of the 11 disciples in the upper room. Judas was dead. Thomas wasn't there. Uh, eight days later, all of the disciples, including Thomas, a couple weeks later in Galilee by the Sea, sea of Tiberias, by the Sea, uh, in, uh, the sea of Galilee, where he would instruct them and encourage them. Then uh, later on, on a mountain in Galilee, where he'd give the great commission to roughly 500 disciples who were present, and then his ascension. In other words, all of these people saw him after he was raised from the dead. Christ was truly raised, and these witnesses serve as proof. This is one great aspect that Paul is summarizing here. And in chapter 15, look down at verse, verse 15. Here's what he says. We are even, if this is not true, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. In other words, what he's saying is this. If Jesus Christ hasn't risen from the dead, you're silly to be living a life of faith in this Christ. In this Jesus. And not only that, but we are liars. Because we're preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we're lying and you're foolish. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead. He's saying this would be silly. This would be silly. And so he's pointing here that this is the truth. This is the reality. Jesus Christ really did raise from the dead. Now, this is one great truth. And because of time, I'm not going to give you really any more of this, but you can look into it. That's the one thing he's pointing out here is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Think about those implications for a minute. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. If he rose from the dead and that means he's God, your life is accountable to him. He's the authority. What he says goes. And that means his word is true. If he's really the Lord, his word is true. And if his word is true, then you should live a life paying attention to what it says. He's the Lord. He rose from the dead. Now, this is the one great truth. He's saying Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead. Now, let me just summarize a second overarching theme in this section here. Jesus Christ, his resurrection is a reality. Number two, the resurrection then for every believer in Christ is a reality. Jesus really rose from the dead and everyone who dies in Christ will really raise, be risen from the what? Dead. So Christ really rose. And if you're in Christ, you will inherit eternal life. That's the great reality. Those are the two great realities he's pointing out here. Really read, uh, read verses 21 through 22 here in chapter 15. He says, for as by a man came death, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made, what? Alive. And so you have to understand here, what he's fighting in this church in Corinth is a lot of doubt and confusion regarding the believer's resurrection from the dead. You see, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. 
They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were upsetting the faith of a lot of believers regarding the resurrection. They were telling people that it wasn't true, that they wouldn't really be raised from the dead after death. And so, listen now, they had to have believed this. They had to believe in Christ's resurrection and even the resurrection for every believer. Why? Because that's what it takes to be a believer. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. You got to believe that to be a believer in Christ. And these are believers in Christ. Go to chapter one of first Corinthians. Go to chapter one of first Corinthians. He calls them saints. He says, Paul called by the will of God to, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brothers, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be what? Saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In other words, what Paul's doing there in the beginning, he's about to really lay into them this, throughout this entire book. This whole book is corrective. The whole book of first Corinthians. He's correcting them. He's rebuking them throughout the entire book. So what he does in the first nine verses of this book is make sure to encourage them. He's saying, listen, you're equal with every believer out there, okay? You're truly the saints of God in Christ. And then in verse 10, he starts, okay, and I'm going to lay into you a little bit, okay? So he's buttering them up a little. But what he's showing here in the first nine verses is these are believers in Christ, so they had to believe in Christ's resurrection in order to be saved. But what's happening is the Sadducees have kind of messed them up a little bit. And they're doubting the resurrection. And they're doubting the reality of believers' resurrection. But what Paul is making clear here is this same reality that happened to Christ will happen to every believer in Christ when they die. When we are united with Christ in his death, we are also united with him in his what? In his what? Resurrection. When he died, it was as if we died for our sins. And when he rose, it's as if when we trust in him, we're given this new life. Our life of sin is paid for and behind us. And we live now by the Holy Spirit and we will never truly die again, an eternal death in that way. So death no longer has victory. Death no longer has victory. Look at chapter 15 and look at verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Now, let me tell you this. Paul's also explaining, they're saying, well, how is this going to be? Are we going to have the same bodies? And what Paul's explaining here is, no, silly. You're, this perishable body is going to be gone. You're going to put on imperishable. Right? And in, and he goes to great lengths to convince them of this, the reality of their resurrection. Because look at verse 16 here. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And so he says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be what? Pitied. In other words, this, humanly speaking, if you don't have any reality of eternal life, you're wasting your time. There's no benefit to this Christianity thing. There's no thing to offer the world for them to be saved and to look forward to. Now, this is humanly speaking, because if Christ is the Lord and we still don't get 
heaven, we should still follow him simply because he's the Lord. But what he's saying here is if this resurrection for you is not a reality, then you're wasting your time. You should just eat, drink, because tomorrow you what? Die. It would be pointless. Live however you want if you're not going to go to heaven when you die. Right? And so all of this is just a flyover. He's speaking of two great realities. Christ really rose and you will be raised when you die. This is the hope. This is the truth. This is the reality. This is the confidence. This is the power behind the exhortation in chapter 15, verse 58. Listen to me now. Listen to me now. Christ really died and he really rose from the grave. He's the Lord. His gospel is true. Your faith is in something real. You have a real savior who's living, whose word is true and whose salvation is effective for all those who believe. And in addition to all of that, after this life, You, if you are in Christ, will be raised from the dead to be with God forever in heaven. All of this will be left behind. All of it will be done away with. There will be new life. All of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the discouragement, all of the hardships won't mean anything. Remember when Paul said, I consider the present sufferings of this life not even comparable to what? To the life to come, to heaven. And so this is the great reality that Paul is reminding this church of. Now, only now, he says in chapter 15, verse 58, therefore, be steadfast. Be steadfast. And so as we get to these exhortations, let me point out one more thing to you here. Look at verse 58 in the very beginning. He calls them what? He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, He's about to tell them something very serious. He's going to give them a command. And it's in light of this great truth of the resurrection. And before he does, he says, you're my beloved brothers. He says, you're my beloved brothers. Paul's Paul's expressing his love for them. He's affirming them and their salvation, just as he did in the beginning of the book in chapter one, verses one through nine. He's encouraging them. He's showing a humble plea. He's showing a brother's heart. He's showing encouragement from a peer. He's surrounding this firm command that he's about to give them with love and affection. And he's saying now, in light of the resurrection and out of love for you, I'm going to tell you some very specifics that I want to be true of you. So let's get into them. You ready? The first of this involves continuation. And these are easy to see, so it's not going to take us long here. The first feature involves continuation. You say, why do you say continuation? Well, let me show you. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be, what's the first word there? Steadfast. This is something he wants them to be. This is a command in the imperative form. The word he uses here, hedreos, Here's what it literally means. You ready? Listen close. It means to be seated. It means to be seated. Be sedentary. Be settled. Literally, be seated. Be conclusive on a matter with conviction. Be 
decidedly convinced. Here's what he's telling them to do. Literally, he's saying, in light of Christ's resurrection, in light of your future resurrection, therefore, the ones I love, listen, be seated. Be seated. Don't move. Be seated. Sit down. Sit down. In other words, be decidedly convinced. Don't change your mind about the faith. Don't change your mind about the gospel. Don't backtrack. Don't walk away from this. This is real. This is true. And this life is short. And you've got heaven. Be seated. Sit down. Don't go anywhere. Don't stand up. Don't walk away. He's not telling them physically to take a seat here. But he's telling them to be seated in terms of their convictions, in terms of the truth. Colossians 1.23 says this, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's the idea. He's the word used in another place in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. It's translated firmly established. It's a stable, settled state. And so now what Paul is saying here is this. This is the way they should be about the gospel. This is the way they should be about their faith. This is the way they should be about the truth. This is the way they should be about their obedience. This is what they should be like in terms of their response to everything he's just said in this entire book. That's what they should be like in terms of their ministry of reconciliation to others, their evangelism. This is what they should be like in terms of their faith. They should be settled. They're not changing. They should be like this. As believers in Christ. And let me encourage you with this. As this church age continues, persecution is going to tempt you to compromise, to give in, to say, okay, I don't really believe that. To, to say, I didn't really mean that. Uh, to say, uh, you know, even though the Lord's teachings are clear on this, I'm willing to compromise because of the consequences that are coming along with this faithfulness. The, accus- the public accusation, uh, the accusation from maybe your family members because they don't believe. And so you have a hard time because you're trying to be faithful. The rumors that spread about you, the untrue things that might spread about you. So the persecution, what about the trials and testings? The Lord might bring into your life some trials, some testings, make you tired, timid, trepidatious, discouraged, despondent, spiritually depressed, out of strength. Paul said he was weak. It's going to make you weak. Maybe you back out a little bit more and more because the truth seems actually confining. Here's what I see a lot of times. People will be really solid in the truth. Then they're going to feel like it's unloving. Then as they go on in life, before they know it, they're 50 years old and they've walked away from the truth altogether because in the very beginning, it seemed to be unloving. And now they have this just universal theology that accepts everybody. They've walked away from the truth. You back out altogether. Maybe it's Satan and his temptation to give up your convictions, to throw wisdom to the curb and to indulge in sin. 
All of these are real things. You know, the Corinthian church, they were tempted towards self-exaltation. That's why they wanted all these miraculous gifts, because they wanted to exalt themselves. They wanted the showy things that happened back at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so Paul's telling them to be obedient, to correct the things he's telling them, to be faithful as a church, to continue going, to evangelize. He's telling them to be seated, to be seated. Don't be tossed. Second Timothy says that people are going to try to itch some existential emotional itch are going to find teachers to suit their own what? Passions. They're going to be tempted to compromise, tempted to compromise. But you, as the church in Corinth needs to be, needs to take a seat on the chair that is the word of God. Take a seat on the truth. Take a seat on the Lord Jesus and his death. Don't get up. You know why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He's really the Lord. His gospel is true. And if you hold on tight, this is going to seem like a small, insignificant portion of what is going to be your eternal life in heaven. And so because of this, take a seat. Don't get up. Now, let me just mention these other ones. Number two. He speaks of here constraint, constraint. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. What's the next word here? Immovable. Now, really, this is the same idea. It just adds to the intensity. Okay. He's saying this, essentially, don't only sit down, but don't even budge. Don't even move. Sit down and don't even move. Don't move. Don't flinch. Don't even flinch. This is exactly what he's saying. The word here, amerikanetas, you can even hear it. If you know these Greek portions of it, kinetas, what does that sound like? It deals with the idea of what? Kinetics, which is what? Movement. Meta, the word in Greek, with, means with. Ah, in the beginning, means without something. So without what? Movement. Without movement. Sit down without movement. Don't flinch. Be constrained by something. Unshakable. Not swayed by every wind of doctrine, as Ephesians 4.14 mentions. Don't be unstable. Don't be a double-minded man, as James says in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Not only are you established with longevity, but you're not being swayed along the way. Sit down to the end of your life and don't even be swayed in the process. That's exactly what he's saying here. Exactly. Your situations don't toss you. Your circumstances don't throw you off kilter because your thinking, how you react is based upon the word of God. Every time something happens in your life, you don't open yourself up to error. You're not swayed every time something bad happens to you because you trust in the Lord. You know his word is true. You're not swayed by error or sin or doubt or discouragement or disobedience. You're not swayed by lies or by the enemy or by sinful people or the world. Your conscience is it's so weak that it's just, it might be sitting, but it's just swaying all the time based upon what's being thrown at you. 
You got to strengthen your conscience by informing your conscience by the word of God. You should obey your conscience. That is a pleasing thing to the Lord, no matter if your conscience is weak or strong. But there's no excuse for you not to educate your conscience by the word of God so that it comes in line with the word of God so that what you're obeying is actually true. You got to spend your life strengthening your conscience by the word of God. And then you obey it. So your conscience is not so weak that you're being swayed all the time by your difficult circumstances. You don't move. You sit down. You stay steady. You remain faithful. And you don't flinch. You don't flinch. You don't move. Now, the third aspect here he's talking about is consistency. He says, always abounding in the work of the what? Lord. Always. Always abounding. Always. Not sometimes, right? Does always mean sometimes? Good. It means always. Abounding, periseo. It's the idea of exceeding expectations. That's the literal, that's what's being said here. In light of Christ's resurrection, he was really raised from the dead. He's the Lord. His gospel is true. And the fact that you're going to be raised from the dead if you hold fast to the end because that's the inheritance of everyone who truly believes. In light of all that, take a seat, don't budge, and always consistently exceed expectations in the Lord. Don't just do the bare minimum. Don't just do what's minimally required of you in the faith. Don't just obey a little bit and try to get away with a little bit. Don't just sin sometimes. The same word here is used in Ephesians 1 verses 7 through 8. It's, it's used when he talks about God lavishing his love on us in the riches of his grace. Lavishing. This is the same idea here that you as a believer in Christ because of the resurrection should be exerting in your service to the Lord. The work, what are they to exceed in? Always abounding in what? In the work of the Lord. In their ministry. In their service to the church. In their service to the saints. In their walk with Christ. In their prayer life. In their Bible reading. In their deeds. In their giving. In their labor. Don't just do the bare minimum. Exceed expectations. Always abound in this. That's the This is what Paul is literally saying to you. So if you hear that and you say, nah, I'm going to still do my own thing. You're just flat disobeying the word of God. This should change you. This should really change you as a church. It should change me. This has a lot of implications. Don't just give the bare minimum so you can also keep your life and everything that you want and so it can all serve you and you can go to heaven fat, happy, and healthy. Paul said he was poured out like a what? Like a drink offering. He was tired. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, take a seat, be established, don't be swayed. Don't even budge. And don't be lazy. Don't just meet his, his 
bare standards of holiness if there were such a thing. Don't idolize rest and recreation. I mean, you know that your life is not about you. I mean, you got so many resources that you could use for the kingdom. What are you doing spending them all on yourself? You know, you got so much strength that the Lord has given you. You're young, some of you. Fit, some of you. Even less of you. Just kidding. You could serve the Lord heartily. You know, you've got so much knowledge. We, you could look on all the social media and you could, and websites and books, and you could know so much about the Lord Jesus. And you know how much you could share with those who don't know? You could sit down with them over coffee and explain it to them. I mean, the list of implications could go on. And you're given the bare minimum to the Lord who rose from the dead and is going to give you eternal life. There's some weighty implications here. Reach your neighbors. Write a letter to someone who's lost and explain to them the gospel. Pour yourself out like a drink offering. Overflow, pray, suffer. The church in Corinth was engaged in sin, idolatry, discord, trying to copy the pagans, exalt themselves. And Paul says, rather than spending all your time on all of that, why don't you just give your whole life and overextend yourself for the cause of Christ? Risk your whole life for this gospel, the work of the Lord. Now, lastly, and really connected with the third aspect, and we're done here. He summarizes all of it, really, but I'm going to use it here as a separate aspect, a separate feature. He says this, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not what? In vain. Knowing here, referring to the, the, the work, the labor that he was just talking about. He says, it's not in vain, not in vain. Go back to chapter 15, verse 14. Same chapter, just go back to verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in what? Vain. And your faith is in what? Vain. But Christ has been raised from the dead and you will be raised from the dead. So all of this is not in what? Vain. It's not in vain because he's true. His gospel is true and your salvation and inheritance is true. It's not in vain. So do all of this because it matters. It matters. It all matters to prove your salvation. To prove your salvation and to be effective for Christ. The gospel is true. The resurrection is real. If you share it, it will also bring salvation to others because it is effective. It can save because it really happened. And you will really go to heaven and you'll make a difference and you'll be sanctified by Christ. This is all reality. He says, do all of this because none of it is in vain in light of Christ's resurrection and your coming resurrection. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. But the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. Eternal. So church, as we close this morning, again, this might be an unusual resurrection text, but I think it's very fitting for us. In Luke's gospel, we've seen the whole progression of the narrative. We saw everything that happened over those days in his resurrection. We also took 
a lot of time to explain the theological implications and significances of his resurrection. I want you to know that the resurrection of Christ and your future resurrection has very specific and important implications for your everyday life. Because he rose, because you will be raised, you should take a seat, don't even budge, consistently abound and exceed expectations. And you can be confident that all of this is true and all of it will be effective because Christ really rose. He's the Lord. Don't look back. Don't compromise. Don't doubt. Don't give up. And, and certainly, certainly don't walk away. Let's pray.